0: So I want to start out by uh, adding a a clarification or just some additional information to something I had said earlier. I was discussing the importance of the great conjunction uh, of Jupiter and Saturn in the millenarian expectations of the astrologers and Kabbalists of the 17th century. Uh, this had been an important uh, omen um, dating back to the Middle Ages. In the Christian world, uh, astrology was of course largely picked up by Europeans uh, at that time from um, the Arabs of earlier centuries, but I was kind of wondering what the uh, big deal was when A conjunction of this kind occurs every 20 years, roughly speaking. Um, And I've looked into it a little bit more, and I have uh, a clarification on how exactly this works. When you have the overlapping of the orbits of Jupiter and Saturn, uh, and when they're in the same sign together, that's a conjunction. But the Successive conjunctions form a a larger pattern, which is much more interesting when you compare it on the Zodiac because it appears to move in a perfect triangle across the Zodiac. And this is called a trigon or triplicity. So the way it works is uh, if you start out in... sign of Aquarius, say, and this isn't probably the exact order, but just for example, uh, it would move successively through Gemini and Libra as the other air signs. And then it would move on to another trigon of the earth signs or the water signs or the fire signs. Um, If you look on the zodiac, the way these are divided up with the four elements the the signs within a single element are going to form a triangular uh, relation to one another and so what this creates is if Jupiter and Saturn are a great conjunction you have a great conjunction a greater conjunction and a greatest conjunction the great conjunction being every time the Jupiter Saturn conjunction happens again The greater conjunction being when you move from one triplicity to another, switching elements. And then the greatest conjunction being when you've gone through the whole cycle of the Zodiac and it begins again. So while the great conjunction happens roughly every 20 years, the greatest conjunction is something like on the order of a thousand. That's like 960 something years. So that would be more of an auspicious kind of thing when that occurs. And it's said to um, presage really important events and uh, was argued that uh, this was the star in the sky that was seen by the Magi before Christ's birth. And so it was one such of these, I believe, in 1623, which generated the expectations of uh, great changes in society. And uh, those appeared to be happening in the 17th century all over the place. I mentioned the English Civil War, the Thirty Years' War largely uh, in the Holy Roman Empire. Uh, you had the collapse of the Ming Dynasty in China, so it wasn't even just in Europe. All kinds of environmental calamities, the Great Fire of London in the year 1666, same year of the apostasy of Shabbatai Zvi. And just FYI, I didn't check whether it was great, greater, or greatest, but we did uh, experience another great conjunction at the very end of 2020, uh, in December, I think. Let's go ahead and get into the next section. We have seen how the principal feature of moderate Shabbatian doctrine was the belief that the apostasy, the Messiah was sui generis, which means one of a kind, FYI, the Messiah must go his lonely way into the kingdom of impurity and the other side, citra ara, and dwell there in the realm of a strange god whom he would yet refuse to worship. The enormous tension between the subjective and the objective which developed in the ranks of his followers had so far found a legitimate expression in this one act alone. Whereas Shabbatai V had actually done strange and objectionable things in the name of the holy, the celebration of this paradox among the believers was restricted to the domain of faith. Moderate Shabbatianism drew a circle around the concept of strange holiness and forbade itself to enter. I really love that image, by the way. Um, It's invoking the idea of the magic circle, which is a simple circle that you draw and can either serve as a protective function for yourself from outside forces or for um, sort of binding um, an evil or threatening force within the circle. And we see this come up in uh, Coleridge's great poem Kublai Khan, the fragmentary dream poem that he wrote um, supposedly hundreds of lines to in his sleep when he had nodded off on opium. And when the dream was interrupted by a knock at his door, he lost the vast majority of the poem and quickly wrote down what he could recall. Um, But the lines go, weave a circle round him thrice and close your eyes with holy dread for he on honeydew hath fed and drunk the milk of paradise. Continuing, it was indeed the Messiah's fate to scandalize Israel by his deeds, but it was decidedly his fate alone. Once drawn, however, the line was clearly difficult to maintain. The more ardent believer found himself becoming increasingly restive was he to abandon the Messiah entirely just when the latter was engaged in the most bitter phase of his struggle with the power of evil? If the spark of redemption had been experienced by all, why should not all do as the Redeemer? How could one refuse to go to his aid? As soon as the cry was heard, let us surrender ourselves as he did. Let us descend together to the abyss before he shuts it again. Let us cram the The maw of impurity with the power of holiness until it bursts from within. Feelings such as these formed the psychological background for the great nihilistic conflagration that was to break out in the radical wing of the Shabbatian movement. The fire was fed by powerful religious emotions, but in the crucial moment these were to join forces with passions of an entirely different sort, namely with the instincts of anarchy and lawlessness that lie deeply buried in every human soul. Traditionally, Judaism had always sought to suppress such impulses, but now that they were allowed to emerge in the revolutionary acceleration brought on by the experience of redemption and its freedom, they burst forth more violently than ever. An aura of holiness seemed to surround them. They too would be granted their tikkun, if only in the hind parts of holiness. Fascinating phrase, um, probably most, most likely referring to Exodus, in which Moses is allowed to see only God's backside and not his full glory, which would surely destroy him. Ultimately, too, the disappointing course of external events had a telling effect. Though he possessed the heroic soul of the warrior, Bar Kokhba, Shabbatai Tzvi had not gone forth to do battle on the Day of the Lord. Bar Kokhba, if you don't know, led the largest Jewish uprising against Rome, and that was ultimately put down. A yawning chasm had appeared between inner and outer realities. And once it was decided that the former was the truer of the two, it was only to be expected that the value of the latter would increasingly come to be rejected. It was precisely at this point that messianism was transformed into nihilism. Having been denied the political and historical outlets it had originally anticipated, the new sense of freedom now sought to express itself in the sphere of human morality. The psychology of the radical Shabbateans was utterly paradoxical and moronic. Essentially, its guiding principle was whoever is as he appears cannot be a true believer. Remember that the Maranos were the forced converts who nevertheless continued to believe and practice Judaism in secret. The event that produced the largest number of these was the expulsion from Spain of Jews uh, and Muslims, at least the parts of Spain that were under the control of Isabella and Ferdinand. I believe there are some parts of what is modern Spain that uh, still were not at the time, but it was required for all of these to convert to Catholicism or leave the country, uh, which many did, and they actually went to places like Turkey or somewhere in the Ottoman Empire, and that's actually the community in which Shabbatai Tzvi was uh, raised was largely made up of uh, Sephardim, even though this was in Turkey, uh, the Sephardic Jews being the, the Jews of Spanish origin. At any rate, in practice, this meant the following. The true faith cannot be a faith which men publicly profess. On the contrary, the true faith must always be concealed. In fact, it is one's duty to deny it outwardly, for it is like a seed that has been planted in the bed of the soul, and it cannot grow unless it is first covered over. For this reason, every Jew is obliged to become a Marano. Again, a true act cannot be an act committed publicly before the eyes of the world. Like the true faith, the true act is concealed. For only through concealment can it negate the falsehood of what is explicit. Through a revolution of values, what was formerly sacred has become profane, and what was formerly profane has become sacred. It is no longer enough to invent new mystical meditations, kavanot, to suit the changed times. New forms of action are needed. Prior to the advent of the Redeemer, the inward and the outward were in harmony, and this is why it was possible to affect great tikkunim by means of outwardly performing the commandments. Now that the Redeemer has arrived, however, the two spheres are in opposition. The inward commandment, which alone can affect a tikkun, has become synonymous with the outward transgression. Bishulah shel Torah. Zehu kiyuma. The violation of the Torah is now its true fulfillment. So the arrival of the Messiah actually inverts and overthrows everything. More than anything else, it was this insistence of the radicals on the potential holiness of sin, a belief which they attempted to justify by citing out of context the Talmudic dictum, quote, a transgression committed for its own sake, is greater than a commandment not committed for its own sake which alienated and offended the average jew and caused even the believers themselves to undergo the severest of conflicts in the history of religion whenever we come across the doctrine of the holiness of sin it is always in conjunction with one or another spiritualistic sect the type of the pneumatic which i have previously discussed is particularly susceptible to such a teaching and it is hardly necessary to point out the connections that exist between the theories of nihilism and those of the more extravagant forms of spiritualism. To the pneumatic, the spiritual universe which he inhabits is of an entirely different order from the world of ordinary flesh and blood, whose opinion of the new laws he has chosen to live by is therefore irrelevant, insofar as he is above sin, an idea common to many sectarian groups, which occasionally occurs in the literature of Hasidim as well. He may do as the spirit dictates without needing to take into account the moral standards of the society around him, and indeed he is, if anything, duty-bound to violate and subvert the ordinary, this ordinary morality in the name of the higher principles that have been revealed to him. Although individuals with inclinations in this direction existed in Judaism also, particularly among the Kabbalists, up to the time of the Shabbateans, their activities were confined entirely to the level of pure theory. The most outstanding example of such speculative or virtual spiritualism to be found in Kabbalistic literature is the Sefer ha Temunah, the Book of the Image. So I'm actually at the moment... Also, reading another essay by Sholem called uh, The Mystical Shape of the Godhead, uh, which is on the text, uh, the the mystical text Shir Kuma, which has to do with the the measurement of the body of God, and it's related to um, Merkaba and Hekelot mysticism, uh, which that's uh, not to get too much into that, but that's chariot and throne mysticism respectively, and these visions often involve uh, seeing literally god's body which like in the uh, passage mentioned before uh, with moses seeing god's hind parts that is actually in the uh, torah and so this is controversial because uh, god is not supposed to have a body he's supposed to transcend uh any thing in the physical universe um, but at any rate uh, This idea of the image uh, has to be kind of articulated a little bit more because uh, the temunah uh, that it mentions there is a word that refers to something which has a shape or is in the process of taking shape, and it's related to the word in Hebrew for kind or species, and that is the word that is used when it says not to make a graven image. Of God uh, or any likeness to God. So we're not supposed to make the image of anything that is like unto God. Whereas when it is said by the Elohim that they should make man in their image, a different word is used, which is uh, Tselem. And Tselem has a connotation uh, not of. I guess more of an abstract form it seems like Temunah is, but uh, Tselem is like a three-dimensional image. But at any rate, it's these visionary or mystical books uh, which are kind of proto-Kabbalistic and then in in Kabbalah proper, um, which tend to focus on this idea of the image of God. Um, But anyway, the Sefer HaTemunah is the book of the image, quoting Sholem now, a mystical treatise written in early 13th century Spain, in which it is stated that the Torah consists of a body of spiritual letters, which, though they remain essentially unchanged, present different appearances to the reader in different cosmic eons, Shemitot. In effect, therefore, each eon, or Shemitah, possesses a Torah of its own. And we might recall here Crowley's eons, uh, which we've discussed on this podcast before, the age of Isis, the age of Osiris, and the age of Horus, which is what we are now in or at least approaching um, or really any stage theory of history. In the current Shemitah, which is ruled by the divine quality of Din, stern judgment or rigor, The Torah is read in terms of prohibitions and commandments and even its most mystic allusions, which must be interpreted in this light. The coming eon, however, which will be that of Rahamim, divine mercy, the Torah will be read differently, so that in all probability what is prohibited now will be permitted then. Everything depends on the particular eon and the divine quality or attribute presiding over it. Sensing the dangers inherent in such a doctrine Certain Kabbalists, such as Moses Cordovero, attempted to dismiss it as entirely unworthy of consideration, but it was precisely those works that propounded it, such as the Sefer Ha and the Sefer Ha which influenced the Shabbatins tremendously. To the theory of the cosmic eons, the Shabbateans assimilated a second, originally unrelated concept. The Zohar itself does not recognize or more exactly does not utilize the idea of the Shemitot at all, a fact that was instrumental in making it suspect in the eyes of later Kabbalists. But in two later additions to the Zoharic corpus, the Tikkunai HaZohar and the Raya Mehemna, a great deal is said on the subject of four emanated worlds. The world of Absolute, or emanation, the world of Beriah, or creation, the world of Yetzirah, or formation, and the world of Asiyah, or making, which together comprise the different levels of spiritual reality. In connection with these, we also occasionally hear of a Torah of Absolute and a Torah of Berea, the meanings of which are not entirely clear. By the time of the Kabbalists of the School of Safed, however, we find these latter terms employed in a definite sense to indicate that there are two aspects of one essential Torah, i.e. the Torah as it is understood in the supernal world of absolute and the Torah as it is understood in the lower world of Berea. The School of Safed would be uh, Isaac Gloria and I believe Moses Cordovero. I'd have to check on that though interesting anecdote on Luria, by the way, is that he would spend days and weeks wandering in the wilderness around Safed, seeing his friends and family only on the Sabbath. Walking, of course, is a great form of meditation and spur to creative thinking and discovery in the realm of ideas as many, many poets, philosophers, and scientists even in a bygone era when scientists viewed their work as being creative will attest to. What the Sabateans now did was to seize this idea and expound it in the light of the theory of cosmic eons. The Torah of Berea, they argued, borrowing a metaphor from the Zohar, is the Torah of the unredeemed world of exile, whose purpose it was to serve as a garment for the Shakina in her exile, so that whoever observed its commandments and prohibitions was like one who helped clothe the Shakina in her state of distress. The Torah of Atzalut, on the other hand, is the true Torah. Like the mystery of the Godhead, it makes manifest, has been in a state of concealment the entire period of exile. Now that the redemption has commenced, it is about to be revealed, and although in essence it is identical with the Torah of Berea, its way of being read will be different. Thus, all the commandments and prohibitions of the Torah of Berea will now be reinterpreted in the light of the world of Atsalut, in which to take but one example, as is stated in several Kabbalistic sources, there is no such thing as forbidden sexual practices. We have a footnote by Sholem here. The tukunai Hazohar, for example, asserts, above, i.e. in heaven, there are no laws of incest. Another commonly cited support for this belief was Leviticus 20.17, which is devoted almost entirely to an enumeration of incestuous transgressions, quote, and if a man shall take his sister, his father's daughter, or his mother's daughter, and see her nakedness, and she see his nakedness, it is a shameful thing. In which the Hebrew, for shameful thing, hesed is the same word that is ordinarily used in the Bible in the sense of loving-kindness. Back to the main text. It was in this manner that assertions made in a completely different spirit and in terms of a wholly different understanding of the concepts world of absolute and Torah of absolute were pressed into service by the radical Shabbateans as slogans for their new morality. Footnote again. Among anti-Shabbatean Kabbalists, There were a number of attempts to explain this monstrous perversion, as it seemed, of sacred writings. In his De Sofrim, for example, R. Zadok Hakohen of Lublin cites an unidentified book written by a saintly man as his authority for asserting that the Shabbatians, quote, "...came to the end that they came to because they engaged in the study of the Kabbalah with their hearts full of lust and therefore materialized much of its spiritual meaning." And in consequence of the fact that they saw references to copulation, kissing, embracing, and so forth, in what they read, they yielded to lascivious passions, may God preserve us from the same, and committed great evil, end quote. In much the same vein, Rabbi Zvi of Zaydecau, that's a Polish name, I think, and uh, Polish pronunciations always trip me up, one of the great Kabbalists of the Hasidic movement, and possibly none other than Rabbi Zadok HaKohen's saintly man himself, writes in the Sir Me'ra Va'asetov, quote, I once heard my teacher, the seer of Lublin, comment on certain students by mentioning the case of that well-known sect. It, i.e. Sabatian antinomianism, happened because they desired to achieve the revelation of Elijah and to prophesy by the Holy Spirit without troubling to discipline their natures or their material selves. And so, by being unworthy and without caution, they overreached themselves by attempting to probe the unity of God without first purifying their material natures, and by imagining divine forms with sexual attributes under the chariot, Merkaba. Their lascivious passions were aroused. May God preserve us from the same, and what happened, happened. And he, the seer of Lublin, quoted the Baal Shem Tov as saying, that because the fool studied this wisdom, the Kabbalah, without application and without the slightest fear of heaven, it materialized its teachings and lapsed. So I think what this is saying is that in order to handle much of what is manifestly sexual material in mystical, Kabbalistic literature and myth, one has to be purified first in order that one doesn't succumb to uh, lustful application of these these ideas. The concept of the two Torahs was an extremely important one for Shabbatian nihilism, not least because it corresponded so perfectly to the maronic mentality. In accordance with its purely mystical nature, the Torah of Atzilut was to be observed strictly in secret. The Torah of Berea, on the other hand, was to be actively and deliberately violated. As to how this was to be done, however, the radicals could not agree, and differing schools of thought evolved among them. It was important to keep in mind that we are dealing here with an eruption of the most diverse sorts of emotion. The Gordian knot, Binding the soul of the exilic Jew had been cut, and a vertigo that ultimately was to be his undoing seized the newly liberated individual. Genuine desires for a reconsecration of life mingled indiscriminately with all kinds of destructive libidinal forces tossed up from the depths by an irrepressible groundswell that undulated wildly between the earthly and the divine. But I mean, I just call that Tuesday, right? That's just human life. Maybe just me. Moving on. The psychological factors at work were particularly various in regard to the doctrine of the holiness of sin, which, though restricted at first by some of the believers to the performance of certain specified acts alone, tended by virtue of its own inner logic to embrace more and more of the Mosaic law, especially the biblical prohibitions, among the leaders of the Donma, the antinomian blessing composed by shabbatai Zvi, Blessed art thou, O Lord, our God, King of the universe, who permittest the forbidden Matir Isurim became a byword. In fact, two somewhat contradictory rationalizations of antinomian behavior existed side by side. On the one hand were those who said in the world of redemption, there can be no such thing as sin, therefore all is holy and everything is permitted. To this it was retorted, not at all. What is needed is rather to totally deny the Berea creation, a word that had by now come to denote every aspect of the old life and its institutions, to trample its values underfoot, for only by casting off the last vestiges of these we can we become truly free. To state the matter in Kabbalistic terms, the one side proposed to withhold the sparks of holiness from the Kilipot until they perished from lack of nourishment whereas the other insisted that the klipot be positively filled with holiness until they disintegrated from the pressure. But in either case, and despite many psychological nuances which entered into the transgression committed for its own sake and the sacred sin, all the radicals were united in their belief in the sanctifying power of sin itself that dwelleth with them in the midst of their uncleanness, as they were fond of interpreting the phrase in Leviticus 16.16. It would be pointless to deny that the sexual element in this outburst was very strong. A primitive abandon, such as the Jewish people would scarcely have thought itself capable after so many centuries of discipline in the law, joined hands with perversely pathological drives to seek a common ideological rehabilitation. In the light of what happened, there is little to wonder at when we read in the texts of in the texts of rabbinical excommunications dating from the 18th century that the children of the believers were to be automatically considered bastards just as it is perfectly understandable that these children and grandchildren themselves should have done everything in their power to obscure the history of their descent one may readily grant of course as zalman rubashov justly observes in his study of the frankists that quote every sectarian movement is suspected by the church against which it rebels of the most infamous misconduct and immorality. End quote. A conclusion which has led to the hypothesis that such accusations invariably invariably, tell us more about the depraved fantasies of the accusers than they do about the actual behavior of the accused. It is Rubischoff's opinion indeed that although the conduct of the Frankists was in itself adequate cause for indignation and amazement, there is also every reason to assume that as a matter of course, it was greatly exaggerated. As valid as the general rule may be, however, the plain facts of the matter are that in the case of the radical Shabbateans, there was hardly any need for exaggeration. As Nahum Sokolo has pointed out in a note to Kraushar's history of Frankism, no matter how thoroughly fantastic and partisan the allegations of the anti-Shabbateans may seem to us, we have not the slightest justification for doubting their accuracy, inasmuch as, in every case we can rely for evidence on the confessions of the believers themselves, as well as on a number of their apologias, which have come down to us both in theoretical and in homiletical form. All this has been recently confirmed by an unexpected discovery. For many years, well into the present age in fact, the Shabbatians in Salonika, the Donma, regularly held a celebration on the 22nd day of the Hebrew month of Adar, known as the Festival of the Lamb. The exact nature of which was kept a carefully guarded secret until some of the younger members of the sect were finally prevailed upon to reveal it to outsiders. According to their account, the festival included an orgiastic rite called the Extinguishing of the Lights. From what we know of this rite, it probably came to Salonika from Izmir, for both its name and its contents were evidently borrowed from the pagan cult of the Great Mother, Which flourished in antiquity and continued to be practiced after its general demise by a small sect of light extinguishers in asia minor under the cover of islam there could be no question that the donma took over this ancient bacchanalia based on immemorial myths and adapted it to conform to their mystical belief in the sacramental value of exchanging wives a custom that was well undoubtedly observed by other radicals in the movement as well the history of shabbatian nihilism as a mass movement rather than as the concern of a few isolated Jewish scholars who donned the fez, like Shabbatai Zvi, began in sixteen eighty three, when several hundred Jewish families in Salonika converted to Islam, so as to conquer the Khalipa from within. From this point and from this point on, organized Shabbatean nihilism appeared in four main forms. One, that of the believers who chose voluntary Maranism in the form of In the form of Islam, the the research that has been done on the subject of the donma, particularly the studies of Abraham Danone and Solomon Rosanes, definitively establishes that the sect was purely Jewish in its internal character, not, of course, in the accepted rabbinical sense, but rather in the sense of a mystical heresy. The apostasy of the donma aroused violent opposition among the moderates for reasons which I have already made clear. Two, that of the believers who remained traditional Jews in outward life while inwardly adhering to the Torah of Absolute. Several groups of such individuals existed in the Balkans and Palestine, beginning with the arrival there of the Haim Malak, and afterwards in the 18th century in northern and eastern Europe, where they were concentrated particularly in Padolia and in such nearby towns as Buchach, Busk, Glenini Seriously. Horodenka, Zolkyu, Zlochow, I'm going to call that Lolkow. That's what that's what it looks like to me. Tismenica, Nadwarna, Podhaichi, Rohatain, and Satanao. But also in other countries, especially Romania, Hungary, and Moravia. Okay, Eastern Europe. Get it together with your spelling. Three, that of the Frankists who Maronized themselves by converting to Catholicism. Four, that of the Frankists in Bohemia, Moravia, Hungary, and Romania, who chose to remain Jewish. Despite the differences between these groups, all of them were part of a single larger entity. Inasmuch as it was believed by all the radicals that externals were no indication of true faith, apostasy was not a factor to come between them. A Jew in the ghetto of Prague, for example, who went on publicly observing the commandments of the Torah of Berea, while at the same time violating them in private, knew perfectly well that the believer in Warsaw or Offenbach, who had recently been baptized for mystical reasons, was still his brother, just as 50 years earlier, Shabbatians in northern Europe had continued to remain in close touch with the Donma in Salonika, even after their conversion to Islam. Essentially, the radicals all inhabited the same intellectual world. Their attitudes toward the Torah, the Messiah, and the mystery of the Godhead were identical. For all that they assumed new and unusual forms among the Frankists. Okay, so I want to end off this section uh, by reading a couple of excerpts, as hinted at before, from the poetry of William Blake that I think are particularly relevant in this section, but also just in this essay as a whole, which if you've been paying attention, and if you haven't, how did you get this far? But I believe you'll be able to immediately see the relevance here and uh, perhaps even get a little bit more context for these uh, fairly well known lines from Blake. The first is A Memorable Fancy, from The Marriage of Heaven and Hell, maybe his best-known work after the Songs of Innocence and Experience. Once I saw a devil in a flame of fire who arose before an angel that sat on a cloud, and the devil uttered these words, The worship of God is honoring his gifts in other men, each according to his genius, and loving the greatest men best. Those who envy or calumniate great men hate God, where there is no other God. The angel hearing this became almost blue, but mastering himself he grew yellow, and at last white pink and smiling, and then replied, Thou idolater, is not God one? And is not he visible in Jesus Christ? And has not Jesus Christ given his sanction to the law of Ten Commandments? And are not all other men fools, sinners, and nothings? The devil answered, Bray a fool in a mortar with wheat. Yet shall not his folly be beaten out of him. If Jesus Christ is the greatest man, you ought to love him in the greatest degree. Now hear how he has given his sanction to the law of Ten Commandments. Did he not mock at the Sabbath, and so mock the Sabbath's God? Murder those who were murdered because of him. Turn away the law from the woman taken in adultery. Steal the labor of others to support him. Bear false witness when he omitted making a defense before Pilate. Covet when he prayed for his disciples, and when he bid them shake off the dust of their feet against such as refused to lodge them. I tell you, no virtue can exist without breaking these Ten Commandments. Jesus was all virtue, and acted from impulse, not from rules. When he had so spoken, I beheld the angel, who stretched out his arms, embracing the flame of fire, and was consumed, and arose as Elijah. Note, This angel, who has now become a devil, is my particular friend. We often read the Bible together in its infernal or diabolical sense, which the world shall have if they behave well. I also have the Bible of hell, which the world shall have whether they will or no. The second one is from the Everlasting Gospel. The vision of Christ that thou dost see is my vision's greatest enemy thine has a long hooked nose like thine mine has a snub nose like mine thine as a friend of all mankind mine speaks in parables to the blind thine loves the same world that mine hates thy heaven doors are my hell gates socrates taught what meletus loathed as a nations bitterest curse and caiaphas was in his own mind a benefactor to mankind doth read the bible day and night but thou readest black where I read white. So I think you can see in both of those the redemption through sin theme, um, the breaking of the law, the double Torah or Bible in the world of Absolute and the world of Berea and probably several other themes that we've been working through in this series but uh i'll leave you to contemplate those until next time